Happy Thursday, everyone. Before we get to another episode of Zeitgeist, I do want to thank you guys all so much for listening, and do tell your friends if you are enjoying our podcast today. We are still working out some kinks on an episode-by-episode basis, so if you hear anything weird, you can always shoot me a message, but do keep in mind that we are still improving our podcast. Speaking of which, I do want to briefly touch on something that has been shaking up the podcast sphere a little bit, which is the LA writer Strike. Now, just so that we're clear, Niv and I are volunteers for this podcast, but I am an actor and Niv is a writer, but neither one of us is currently in a union. But hey, we're excited for that to change in the future, possibly. I am personally planning on joining SAG when I am able to do so. That said, there's a lot going on with SAG right now. Zeitgeist always values different viewpoints, and I mean that honestly. I feel responsible to share my thoughts on the strike's role in our podcast, and I'll do so in a second. While we are not in unions, we are still committed to the fair treatment and pay for both writers and all industry professionals, including actors as well. So in future episodes, we will be handling these strike topics thoughtfully and with as much respect as possible and try to stay transparent and, if possible, talk about the strike in relation to the podcast. That said, we are not anticipating any disruptions in our podcast for now. Influencers have been asked not to promote any upcoming projects, and to my deepest analyses, Zeitgeist has not and will not, until this strike is over, be doing any of that. We are not taking money from the studios, we have not been taking any money at all, and quite the opposite. We are acting as a critique to the studios. We hope our art is as good as it can possibly be. And that means it's produced ethically and by union labor. Our podcast is distinct from typical advertising, any advertising at all. And so we are not going to be affected by the SAG after strike. But like I said, we intend to acknowledge the impact the strike has on future projects. We are interested in the strike and I would like to cover it as much as possible. So just so we're clear, Critique versus advertising. Critique involves evaluating and analyzing various aspects of a project, but we are highlighting the strengths and weaknesses. That's an important distinction. We are looking to provide insight and to generate a discussion. This is not a one-way street. We also really want to examine the idea of, or I do, mini rooms as they impact TV because we are going to be talking about a lot of TV. We are going to be talking about these eight-episode shows that are new to streaming and are, in fact, one of the topics of debate in this current strike discussion with the WGA. So to be clear, I'm specifically talking about mini rooms. On the other hand, advertising is a promotional act. So if there is an actor who is taking money from the studios or an actor that is generally just speaking positively about something, maybe not going in depth, I think to me that is a less ethical practice to be doing right now, and it is propping up the studios. SAG-AFTRA has gone on record saying that in fact people ought not to cancel their streaming services because that just proves the studios right that they are losing money. Starving the studios out will only force them to double down on their point that they can't afford to pay the writers and actors a living wage. That is just factually false. Speaking as an actor for a minute, 
Acting is much more difficult than it might seem. It involves specialized effort. It involves long hours and you have to appear like you have done it all your life and you're not breaking a sweat. Despite all these challenges, acting brings me intense joy, the kind of which is unmatched in any other medium. But I can acknowledge that streaming has always sat funny with me. So I'm so glad to see that these discussions have started to happen and that real change is coming. I want you guys to keep in mind that after a shoot ends, actors often face long-time unemployment between projects. Compensation is designed to help actors sustain themselves. So if you see that an actor is paid a lot of money, keep in mind that they have to sustain themselves with that money for months or maybe even a year. Now, big Hollywood actors getting paid millions of dollars means that they get a pretty cushy lifestyle, but not everybody has that. And in fact, most actors are making very little and royalties currently for TV could be as low as $20 per year. That is not a sustainable model. So that said, one last time, I fully support SAG-AFTRA's strike and if there are more changes put into place in their language about how we talk about the industry, I will follow those guidelines. And I will not be putting out a critical podcast if the language indicates that I should not be putting out a critical podcast. In some ways, I do feel like I have to cover myself, both for me and for my co-host, who is a writer and is eligible in the years to come to join WGA. The language that is currently in place is a little gray, and as that gray area gets filled, maybe things will change. As of now, I am very happy to present you our Barbieheimer podcast. So without further ado, enjoy. What's up guys? Welcome to Zeitgeist, where we talk about all the latest TV and movies while listening to the latest music. To keep abreast of our musical programming, do make sure you're listening on either Spotify or Mixcloud, otherwise you just won't hear any music between segments. Today we'll be spoiling certain parts of Greta Gerwig's Barbie, and there will be extensive spoilers in the second half for Oppenheimer, as much as one could spoil that sort of film. I'm Jordan Conrad, and joining me is the only dude I'd ever want to mansplain the Godfather to me. It's Nivel Boz. What's up, man? Ah, I'm disappointed. I wish you said that I'm the only person that you would want to have like a full-on Barbie blowout with and then a slumber party. You know what? You are also, while we are mansplaining the Godfather to each other, we are having a guy Barbie blowout, a Ken blowout. Yeah, obviously. No, absolutely. I'm sorry that you thought otherwise, but you are invited. You're there. You're not only there, but you're the guy coming in early with beer. You're setting the tone. Are you sure? Of course, man. Or lemonade. I think we're Ken's, so we don't drink beer. No, we don't drink beer. No, yeah. You're showing up with a six-pack of lemonade. I think you're an essential part of the pregame. So today, we're starting up with our convo on Barbie. Obviously, this is our Barbieheimer pod. What an insane month this has been, right? There's been a whole new term for this, which has been called counterprogramming. Granted, this term has been around forever, but it's been specifically used to a huge extent with this particular moment in our zeitgeist, which is these two movies being so different from each other, releasing at the same time. 
Well, ever since there were blockbusters, there's been counter-programming. The big thing with this particular counter-programming is just the way in which it was received, which I'd love to analyze with you here. The reason why the counter-programming existed at all is because Barbie was moved. They had a different film on the docket. They had a movie that to this day still doesn't have a release called Coyote vs. Acme, which is starring John Cena. So that was what they originally had in the middle of July, and they moved it, goodness knows why, and then put... We definitely know why. Greta Gerwig's movie in its space. Uh, you know, I'm glad they did. I don't know if I would have enjoyed the John Cena movie Coyote vs. Acme based off of the Looney Tunes quite as much. Barbie and Oppenheimer had a release date dispute, right? Both films had notable directors. That's one of the big things, is that these guys aren't only creating blockbuster-style entertainment, but they're auteurs, right? What's your history with Nolan? Were you a Nolan fan? I mean, we're both Nolan fans. I feel like that's like a rhetorical question. It's not even a serious question. I mean, I haven't seen a Nolan movie. I saw Dunkirk on a plane and I saw Dark Knight Rises, but I haven't seen a Nolan movie in many years. So I think I was a Nolan fan. I would say I was a adamant Nolan fan at one point in my life, but I don't know if I would consider myself a Nolan fan the same way I once was, just on account of the fact that I missed so many movies. I haven't seen Tenet. Did you watch Tenet? I did not. But it's because it came out during the pandemic. And I was just kind of like, wow, do I want to see a Christopher Nolan movie during a pandemic? And my answer was no. For the same reason, I wouldn't want to watch Oppenheimer during a pandemic. It's just really heavy. It feels like every time you watch a Nolan movie, it feels like the gravity of it emanating from those movies is crushing you. Like there's no space to breathe in any of his movies, which is partially what makes him an amazing auteur, right? Because he's able to generate such an intense sense of tone that really reverberates from his movies. But at the same time, it's so suffocating. So that's why you shouldn't watch it when, you know, an existential sort of thing like a pandemic is happening because you're already being suffocated from the world around you. Well, and the people working at Warner on the side of distribution clearly found the humor in programming Barbie right on top of Oppenheimer, because this is well known to be Nolan's slot. He's had this July weekend on his movies for not every single movie consecutively, but frequently throughout his career. He has absolutely adored this weekend. It's sort of his personal pet project. I'm not exactly sure why. It's not like he makes a movie every single year to put out on this weekend. But when he does make a movie, it's almost always in this July slot. So it's well known, I think, to the people at Warner that that was something he did. And so when he moved to Universal with Oppenheimer, they slated Barbie right in there, particularly, I think, because Barbie is so whatever the product is going to be is going to be so different, so unobtrusive. So, I mean, in the worst case scenario, vapid. I think that, look, we need to talk about the dispute as well, right? Because there is a sense of drama surrounding this dispute that Nolan worked with Warner Brothers for almost all his films because these corporations, specifically Warner Brothers, these studios were like, you know what? Streaming is a the future. Theaters are not. So it's best to put our products on there and drive up subscriptions on that as opposed to support these theatrical 
blockbusters anymore. And Nolan being old school was like, nope, sorry, not about that. At the end of the day, these streamers and these studios, they're here to make money. And that's ultimately what it was about for Warner Brothers. And that's very clear with dropping Nolan, uh, someone that they had a very long-term relationship with, and picking up Gerwig. And in the process, they got a win-win situation. Not only did they have a Greta Gerwig movie in that same slot, but they ended up having one that was this prime IP, it was the same reason why no other studios in the past have been trying to make a Barbie movie is because there is some pull quote that's been lobbed around for years saying that there is a 99% acknowledgement or what is the rate of knowledge of Barbie. The fact that almost everyone in the United States or maybe even in the world knows who Barbie is and what she represents. And I think that's why. It's also kind of an underdog intellectual property. Is it? You really think so? Because it's something so strange. I don't know how one would make a Barbie movie. In the same way that if you made a Connect Four movie, it would just be kind of a puzzle box of how you would create a movie based off of that. You can't really make a movie out of nothing. So a doll that is kind of empty, you have to think outside the box. And that's what Barbie is. I mean, as a movie, they had to think very much outside the box to create, no pun intended, something that is just very colorful and unlike a lot of the modern blockbuster trends. I mean, it does feel like a throwback to me. But also, you compare this to something like Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, I think that is a good sort of case. Uh, Mattel versus Hasbro. Hasbro made a movie earlier this year based off of one of their IPs. And while Honor Among Thieves feels very much more in line with a heist movie, Barbie feels in some ways like plenty of other movies, but in other ways completely unlike anything that's come out this century. So that's kind of my take on the Barbie movie in general. I think putting it against Nolan was very intentional in that way, but it also completely fell out of either studio's hands, which is really what I wanted to talk about which is that the release ultimately was a huge commercial success for both. Oppenheimer was not tracking for anything near what it ended up opening on. It was more marginal than Barbie, but I think that's for other reasons that I'll talk about a little bit later. Well, they're polar opposites, right? Barbie represents something colorful, something very feminine, whereas Oppenheimer represents darkness, but also something very masculine. Barbie a doll and the atomic bomb, <laughs> which is kind of a crazy crazy polarization, right? Because on one end, you have something that is considered extremely masculine, which is war. And then the other thing is a toy, which is considered the more feminine thing. And I think both movies do a really amazing job at subverting those surface level expectations or surface level meetings of both those things and what they have to do with specific gender dynamics. But ultimately, it's that sort of polar opposite sort of function or more specifically, counter-programming that allowed these movies to succeed. Because as you said, even though it was intentional, especially by Warner Brothers, to pit Barbie against Oppenheimer, you're right to say that it wasn't intentional to make both of them hyper-successful because of how different they were. Yeah. Right. But the interesting thing about counterprogramming is that it's a technique that usually involves deliberately scheduling movies with different themes, genres, or targets to cut in on competition but still carve out your own niche. Do you have some examples on previous counterprogramming examples? Because I can think of one that actually involves Nolan. All right. I would love to hear yours first. 
that's 15 years ago. Mamma Mia and The Dark Knight both opened on this weekend, the weekend of Barbieheimer. <laughs> and both were successful movies. But I think that this one is going to be more well-known than that one. But yeah, the other examples, and again, I think counter-programming is a tricky thing because it could be intentional. It can be intentional marketing-wise. But I also think that a lot of it has to do with luck, as a lot of other artistic successes are. Because the other big examples that I found when I was researching was in 2002, About a Boy, starring Hugh Grant and produced by Universal, was released around the same time as George Lucas's Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, produced by 20th Century Fox and Lucasfilm. Both movies were successful, but you didn't see crazy posters with Hugh Grant leading clone troopers against droids or something like that. And really recently in 2022, Avatar The Way of the Water, produced by Disney, was released at the same time Puss in Boots, The Last Wish was released, which is produced by DreamWorks, again, slash Universal. Universal has been doing this for years, where they've been like in a counter-programming sort of battle or alliance in whichever way you see it. They're mad dogging the other studios, huh? But I think this time they've been the ones on the other end of that stick where Warner Brothers was chasing them as opposed to the other way around. That's pretty cool to be that person. But Puss in Boots 2 didn't exactly stagnate. I think it had about as much legs as Avatar. Granted, I think that's because it was a particular part of the Christmas season and January when there was just like a lack of children's entertainment. So Avatar The Way of Water did overshadow it in the same way that Oppenheimer is a little bit overshadowed. But I think Puss in Boots probably is a better example of how things can get squashed. Well, it's also important to note that it's weird to say, but Disney and DreamWorks have had a very, very long rivalry with each other, starting all the way back from the movie Ants and A Bug's Life. But it's because a lot of people from Disney moved to DreamWorks. But there's also the whole studios creating movies that are similar to each other. I think in the most recent zeitgeist, that would be like Batman v Superman and Captain America Civil War or the multiverse thing where The Flash, which we're going to be talking about next episode, was programmed to try to open around the same time as Multiverse of Madness. That, of course, didn't work because, again, pandemic. But it still hit the multiverse zeitgeist because we're unfortunately living through it and it's not ending. But speaking of development, I think that we should talk about how sort of insane Barbie's development cycle was. Because as you said, it was a very popular IP and everybody wanted it at one point. It was bouncing around different studios, right? Where was it before Warner? The original rights was actually with Universal, and they literally did nothing with it. There was no script, there was no production, it was in development hell, until it eventually shifted to Sony, who did a bunch more development with it. They hired a bunch of screenwriters, and the original film was sort of envisioned as an anti-Barbie sort of girl boss take, which was really popular sort of 10 years ago. And the comedian slash actress Amy Schumer was a attached to star. The idea circulated between many, many screenwriters, as I said, one of which was acclaimed Juno screenwriter Diablo Cody, who sort of opened Pandora's box on this development cycle when Greta Gerwig's and Margot Robbie's version of Barbie came out. And it's sort of insane. 
I agree. It could not have happened without adding Diablo Cody, because Diablo Cody kind of created the idea in the general Hollywood sphere that there could be a feminist Barbie movie. Having Amy Schumer in the role was definitely that kind of choice. But also... I think Diablo Cody proves how difficult a Barbie movie is. During the process of Barbie's commercial release, the advertisements and the general ad campaign that was going on, Diablo Cody was actually reached out to by GQ, and she had this to say about her script. She said when she was first hired for this, she didn't think the culture had embraced femme or bimbo as valid feminist archetypes yet. If you look up Barbie on TikTok, she says, you'll find this wonderful subculture that celebrates the feminine, but in 2014, taking this skinny, blonde, white doll and making her a heroine was a tall order, and that's absolutely true. And she says it perfectly. The fact of the matter is, with this new TikTok culture and with this embrace towards bimbofication, as the TikTokers tend to say, that is, I think, essential to the fact that Barbie is on track to make a billion dollars. But that's what it comes down to, IP. You mentioned earlier, like, how do you approach even filming this kind of IP? And I believe there is really only two ways, two ways that have appeared multiple times at this point throughout many other films that have focused on IP. Either you fully commit to the wildness of this IP, where you commit to the world, you're fully like creating a story around that world, like Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, and Barbie, or you create a movie about the creation of the IP, sort of a historical biopic of how this doll or this IP was created in the first place. I mean, the movie Tetris that came out on Apple Plus a while ago now. But those are the only two ways I've seen it done. And I feel like these are the only two ways that it's done. And I think it was really, really smart to fully commit to Barbie because I felt it brought about a really strong message, a stronger message than just doing like a historical biopic. Not to say that a historical biopic about Barbie wouldn't be interesting because I did a lot of research about the actual creator because I did and I actually was able to convince my mother to go see Barbie based on that research because it actually connected with her. But at the same time, Barbie is not so much about the people who created her. I don't think that's where the true power is. I think the true power comes with what the IP represents. Greta Gerwig said herself, it's as personal as anything she's ever done. I think she's totally found her voice in this fantasy world. And I think the fantasy world is the best-cased version of a Barbie movie. But I also, as we'll talk about a little bit later, think that they were able to marry the history of Barbie with the actual world that they're telling in this story. And not only the history of the creation of the product, but the history of girls who have used the product. I think that is the genius of Barbie 2023, is that marriage of every single possible thing. The fact that they have the Mattel Corporation around them that they have to make this into, there's no reason why the Barbie movie shouldn't be this good. And I am honestly still enthralled with the movie. I've seen it twice, might go a third time. I don't think I've hit the zenith of my enjoyment of this movie yet. But 
In the development cycle, as I mentioned, Greta Gerwig was the writer of it. She wasn't originally the director, but when she ended up writing the script, she said, I love this. Can I do it? And the answer was yes. And I think that's actually really particular to the environment in which the movie was created. The movie eventually shifted from Sony to Warner Brothers in 2018. And the person who was front and center of that development was actually Margot Robbie. She not only was quickly attached to Star, she was given a producer role and she actually pitched her vision of it to Warner Brothers and Mattel. She actually talked to and had many meetings with Yanone Kriz, who's the CEO of Mattel. And she was the one who was able to convince him to sign off on this movie full on, which was amazing. Like, I think Margot Robbie should get a lot of kudos for making this movie happen because without her, this movie wouldn't have happened. We can sing praises to Greta Gerwig all we want, but I think the one person who was absolutely essential in every sense of the word to making Barbie 2023 happen was Margot Robbie, which is kind of insane as well because there have been a lot of videos popping up showing Brad Pitt calling her a Barbie and her being like, no, that's not who I am. And then flash forward many years later, and she's like, well, I did it. I became Barbie. Speaking of Greta Gerwig, eventually Margot Robbie approached Greta Gerwig, who is an acclaimed director and actress, who we know directed Lady Bird and the 2019 adaptation of Little Women. Both movies were not only critically acclaimed, but were recognized by the Oscars as well. And there was, even with Barbie, even with such a huge IP as Barbie, I had no doubt in my mind that it would also be Oscar worthy when it eventually came out. And those thoughts were only reinforced by the condition that Greta Gerwig requested from Margot Robbie in order to jump into this process of writing the screenplay. She requested that she write the screenplay with her life partner, Noah Baumbach, who is a renowned director and screenwriter in his own right, writing and directing Marriage Story on Netflix. Well, and Bombach himself is not averse to the one for them, one for me approach. And has done commercial projects alongside stuff like Marriage Story. He had previously written Paramount's Madagascar 3, Europe's Most Wanted. So it's him kind of bringing Gerwig into the fold in some ways on account of the fact that Gerwig has largely made products like, I mean, she's best known, I think, still as the lead actor of Frances Ha, just because that is such a visible role for her as a creative. She not only wrote it, but she is the star. And I think Baumbach directed it. And he co-wrote it with her, actually. He co-wrote Frances Howard. So this is kind of Gerwig's big move into the mainstream. And I think that was something that she has gone on an interview saying she was pitching the script around, basically. And she and Margot Robbie kind of got it packaged together with her Margot Robbie's production company, which I also want to point out, awesome. Awesome to see Margot Robbie doing stuff like this. She also produced Promising Young Woman. She starred and produced Itania, which I adore. Very underrated movie, even though it was a huge Oscar ticket that year. That said, I agree. I think that this movie could not have been made without Margot Robbie and her shield that she gave to the team. And so not only was she a great actor in the movie, but as a producer, I think top-notch and goes along with the greats, Joel Silver and all of the iconic 80s producers of yesteryear. I think Margot Robbie is the new version of that alongside Brad Pitt. 
And I think it says a lot that Warner Brothers, who's renowned for meddling in development cycles, actually gave Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach complete creative freedom, thanks to a large push by Margot Robbie. I don't think Barbie as a movie would have been successful if it was meddled by studios too much. And Warner Brothers has been renowned to do that with their other big blockbusters, like the movies in the DCEU, which have had reshoots upon reshoots upon reshoots because executives are never happy with those movies. But that's the thing. The executives were able to finally give creative freedom to Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig, largely in part because Margot Robbie was like, yo, let the artists do their work. But I personally felt that that was like a double-edged sword because even though they are astounding screenwriters and did a really good job with the script, because they were astounding screenwriters, I think they did a couple of drafts and they were happy with it. But I would have wanted to see what would happen if they kept working on it for another one or two drafts. It's like a bread, man. You got to let it rise. And you know what? When I dug into this wonderful loaf of Barbie, I was on cloud nine. I don't think I will agree with your critiques, but I'm happy to hear them and I'm excited to touch on them. But my first round of applause goes to, and I've already said it, Miss Margot. She, as Barbie, has this incredible... Okay, so actor corner, Jordan's actor corner. I have to do it once in every single section of a podcast. This is the time to do it. Her physical presence is just like a doll. She speaks like a doll. She moves like a doll. And that is not only in certain sections of the movie. It's not like when she becomes what she becomes later in the film that she takes on new characteristics as her character grows and changes. But the whole time, she has these great character gags that feel incredibly doll-like. And that is something that they don't do anything with CGI or yada, yada, yada. That is all in body. And that shows that she is not only a Hollywood person that she can make movies, but she is willing to go there as an actor. And I think that's amazing. She's an artist in every sense of the word. I think you hit it spot on. She's a very mechanical artist in so many ways. I think my favorite shot in the film is when she, the character talks about death. It, this appears in the trailer, so I'm not spoiling anything. But she talks about death and, and the big like party blowout. And then everybody looks at her, everybody pauses, and she's still smiling, but her face is like pause and scary. And it feels very doll-like. She's done this when she's portrayed Harley Quinn and this DCEU, and she's done this in Itania as well. She operates on such a mechanical level that at times it could feel really scary, but at other times it can feel, more importantly to this movie, I think it could actually come across as really graceful. Because Barbie is quite a graceful doll when you think about it on a deeper level. Because that's what she's supposed to represent, right? Femininity in a graceful way. Yeah, I mean, stiff but effortless. And that's not easy to do. I would consider it balletic. That's the way I would I would call it. And, you know, plenty of actors. And what is ballet if not graceful? <laughs> exactly. And feminine. I mean, in some ways you could. I mean, I think there's plenty of masculine ballerinas, too. But yeah, fantastic 
no notes. Margot, keep doing your thing. What do you think about her compatriot, Ryan Gosling? Oh my god, he's amazing. We can sing the praises of, of these known amazing actors and actresses all we want. But I think what Ryan Gosling brings to the table is sort of a character that I've never seen him portray before, which is a character that's so forcefully subdued that he's about to explode at any moment. And I've never really seen Ryan Gosling do that because he's so effortlessly cool. And here he's supposed to portray someone who's not effortlessly cool. I think the most classic Ryan Gosling movie I can think of is Crazy Stupid Love. And in that movie, he's like mentoring Steve Carell on how to be cool. That is my picture of Ryan Gosling. And here he's like the complete opposite of that. But what's hilarious is that he's also portrayed as like an incel on TikTok occasionally due to his performance in Blade Runner 2049 and Drive. But again, he's even in those movies, he is brooding. He's playing the action hero. He's playing the very cool anti-hero dark person that we expect in our blockbuster movies. Barbie is still considered a blockbuster, but he's not headlining the ticket. Sure, he is the second most important actor in the ticket, but the person headlining it is Margot Robbie. And I saw recently an interview with Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling where Margot Robbie praised Ryan Gosling for having the ability to be humble in that kind of process. And I think, well, Ryan Gosling is a person who's led his own movies so many times now. He is a classic sort of Hollywood star. And in this movie, he not only takes like sort of a backseat, even though he's one of the main characters, but he's playing a character that is constantly being made fun of, not just by the people around him, but by the script itself. And at the beginning of the movie, he's a blank slate, which means that Ken is a really exciting character from a screenwriting perspective, because he can go in so many different ways. And I love the space he goes so much that I'm not going to talk any more about it. You're going to have to see it for yourself if you haven't already. But I think the awesome thing about Ken, but also something that has rustled the discourse, is that in the second half of the movie, he does get a lot of interesting material. And it's material that might, some might call superfluous in some corners of the world. I think you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say superfluous. Or character growth. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's the Fox News propaganda machine of, yeah, this movie is hyper-feminist, when it's not. But there's also men who are claiming that this might be really Ken's story and that the name Barbie is a misnomer and yet Ken is actually the main character. No, I think they're both the main characters of their own story, but their story intertwines with each other. We've talked about protagonists, deuterogonists before. Protagonist is the most important character in the story because we're following their story more specifically, but a deuterogonist is the secondary most important character. And we're also following their story, less so than the main one, but still following their story. And I think that's what's happening with Barbie and Ken. This is still Barbie's story. We end with Barbie. And Ken is able to sort of learn his lessons from the movie from his experience with Barbie, not the other way around. Actually, Barbie doesn't necessarily learn from her experiences with Ken, and that's part of the point. Well, and they learn stuff about themselves based off of what they need to know. At the beginning of the beginning of the movie, Ken wants to be the person attached to Barbie. That is his character goal. And throughout the movie, 
his learning about himself is the way in which he is able to become the person that we see at the end of the movie. And that is still in relation to Barbie. But Barbie was never in relation to Ken in that same way, because Barbie is Barbie and Ken is Ken. He's the... He just does beach. <laughs> That's all he does. But there's also the aspect where both of these characters are a metaphor for puberty and that their growth is ultimately almost like the children playing with them pubescent growth where eventually they learn and grow and change and become new versions and the world of barbie land either has to grow with them or they have to figure out something else i'm glad you mentioned that because the world of the story is equally as important to the story it tells and that's sort of been a trend i'd like to say with these kinds of movies because barbie is not the first toy ip that has had like a big sort of blockbuster release. It's actually, I believe, the third one. Well, and it's one that has a lot in common with another toy IP. I mean, there's two in my mind right now, which I'm thinking of. Okay, well, what are the two? Well, the first one that really had like its own blowout was the Lego movie in 2014, directed by Phil Lord and Chris Miller. That's the one. In 2001, Free Guy, which starred Ryan Reynolds, was released in 2021, and it was directed by Sean Levy. Both have to do with a main character that is a toy. In the Lego movie, it is a Lego man. And in Free Guy, it is an NPC in a video game. Both characters are characters that start very much in their own world. But then they slowly realize that there is an even larger, more real world outside of their world that's affecting their world. And of course, we call that reality, our human world, our Earth. And both characters are subservient to reality, but they learn ways to affect it, to benefit them, right? And that's sort of what's happening with Barbie as well. I don't want to go too much into detail with the Lego movie and Free Guy, because I think you should watch those two movies yourselves. But I think Barbie is able to really grow, not only as a character, but quite in general as a film, when it forces its main characters outside of Barbie world into our real world because all of a sudden there is like a fish out of water situation happening where Barbie is like wow this world is not the feminist utopia that we have back in Barbie world why one of my favorite gags in the entire movie is when Barbie looks up at a billboard of the Miss Universe pageant and she goes look it's their supreme court one of my favorite things about the Lego movie and Barbie is that Will Ferrell plays the same character in both he functions in different ways obviously the actual what they do with the character couldn't be more different but the actual character that will ferrell plays is identical they've been doing side-by-side -side shots on the internet and i think he's wearing the same exact costume it's like a black suit with a red tie and a white button shirt so it's kind of nuts so a part of me wants to believe it was intentional but i also think it was like probably a happy coincidence and while Barbie movie is almost a perfect storm of that Lego movie trope that meets, I think, with this, I mean, it's something you kind of seen a lot more, and it's against toys versus, like, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Sonic the Hedgehog. Those movies are pretty similar to Barbie, at least in the first half. It's the fake character in a real world type of stock plot. I think you'll see it a million more times just because it works. Sonic the Hedgehog, the movie, proves that it works. Is it a great plot? I don't know. But I think it works for what it needs to do. And I think in the case of Greta Gerwig's Barbie, she can take 
this stock plot and she can inject so much else into the movie that to me it's a perfect marriage and really elevates that otherwise kind of boring tepid plot i think she's able to do that because the ip represents so much right she's able to inject so much because there's a lot of gravity around this doll and what kind of messages it sends out not only in our time but a time that we have long passed because barbie started out as replacing the normal baby dolls which is shown in the beginning of the movie it didn't instill a sense of womanhood in them it instilled a sense of motherhood in them and i think barbie changed that because barbie instilled a sense of womanhood and that's a big difference and at that time barbie was considered quite an empowering ip because it represented something women could and should be just like those baby dolls did as well once upon a time but as times change ip messages start to turn started representing the impossible standards we put on women that women should look quite slender and they should wear certain things they should look a certain way and if they didn't fit the perfection that is a barbie doll then they weren't good enough and i think that is the message of this movie that barbie represents so much good and bad and it's the kind of messages we as people embed on the doll that ultimately those are the messages that we get back I mean, gender is obviously something that's important to every individual person, but it's also not something that's going to define an individual person either. And I think that's the thing that the Barbie movie really gets to at its core, which is that Barbie herself isn't even Barbie. The idea of that physical perfection still doesn't exist inside Barbie at her core. When you learn more about the character, you learn that she isn't Barbie. She is playing the role of Barbie, maybe, but she's only as Barbie as a person can be in a day. And so I think it's an important intro to feminism to someone who might otherwise be put off by the buzzwords that are in the movie. And sure, there's gonna be people who only listen to Fox News and who will be immediately turned off when the word patriarchy starts being dropped. But if you are at all interested, I mean, we're two guys on a podcast, right? Neither one of us has any incentive other than to be a good person to be for feminism, but I consider myself a feminist. I think you do as well. I do because I saw a post today of one of my friends watching Barbie and he called it a visual masterpiece, but something that pushes a feminist manifesto. And I was like, what does a feminist manifesto even mean? Because feminism at its very core just means equality between genders. It doesn't mean that one is more important than the other. I think that's where matriarchy and patriarchy come in because that's the core conflict of this movie. It's not feminism versus masculinity. It's patriarchy versus versus matriarchy. And those are completely different terms because we start out in this movie in Barbie land, which is a matriarch utopia. It's not a feminist utopia because the men aren't equal. The men are actually subservient to the women in Barbie land. They literally serve the women drinks all day and they do not get invited to their slumber parties. They get invited to the blowout. They sleep on the street as far as we know. <laughs> Ken does say that. They sleep on the streets. They don't have a house. But also, Ken's journey is more than just about his masculinity. It's about being emotionally involved and known and cared for. And that's the way in which, of course, his journey is parallel to Barbie. But at the same time, it does have to do with masculinity, right? Because his belief of getting that recognition that he craves for 
is through masculinity. It's through that chest pumping that we talked about in Top Gun many episodes ago. It's because as soon as Ken arrived in our reality, he realized that it is a world run by patriarchy. And he realized that men, even though that power has been more subdued, thankfully due to a stronger push of feminism, it's still very much apparent that our world runs on patriarchy. It's just better hidden. As the movie itself points out, masculinity has always been a surface level thing that has been designed to hide the vulnerable states of men. Because vulnerability in our patriarchal world has always been deemed as weakness. And that's what Ken is replacing his vulnerability with. He realizes he can't be vulnerable with Barbie because she's not a true partner to him. He is her servant. And the only way he can be happy is if he gets noticed by her. That's something that's pointed out in the movie right away. That Ken is only happy when Barbie looks at him or gives him attention even for a minute. And if that attention is swayed to a different direction, he becomes so depressed, which feels very real. It feels like such a masculine thing to do. Men do it all the time. They get so obsessive with their supposed partners that they're like, whoa, if you talk to another man, I will get so jealous that I will be clinically depressed. But that's something I love about the movie, is that it is such a characteristic distillation in the way in which these characters interact, because the characters are very simple at their core. Their voices are very simple, the way they act is very predictable, but the way in which they're introduced to new things and the way that the plot unfolds means that there are constant surprises, despite the fact that you could argue that the characters are two-dimensional, but I think that because of the vibrancy that these characters express, that two-dimensionality, I'm like, they made a two-dimensional world something better. Yeah, they made a two-dimensional world that transformed into a three-dimensional thing once we dug deeper and deeper and deeper. Because you're right, these two characters are designed to be two-dimensional because they are based on dolls. They are based on ideas. But at the same time, they're both learning to be people. I think that's what the main story is about. They're starting to realize what their needs are as people. What could better serve them to create healthy lifestyles for themselves? Because patriarchy and matriarchy are not equal, there is a sense of ownership when it comes to the other side of things. In Barbie land, there is a sense of ownership that the Barbies feel like they own the Kens, that they need to serve them. Whereas with Ken and later the other Kens, there is a sense of like, no, we're in a relationship, so I own you. It's not the other way around. I own you. And Ken took over the Mojo Dojo Casa house because he learned something that Oppenheimer also learns, which is property is theft. It feels very real in the sense of gender dynamics, that when you're in a relationship with someone, whether it be a friendship or a romantic relationship, there's always a quid pro quo. But that has to do more with gender dynamics than anything else. It doesn't have to do with a sense of loyalty necessarily, it just has to do with the ideas that have been instilled in us for many, many, many generations of like, yo, that dude is your bro, then that bro needs to act in a certain way under certain rules, under certain guidelines of what a bro means 
means that we arbitrarily created in our society. None of it makes sense, but we try to create rules around our relationship, even though, you know, people are people. You can't create stringent rules like that. You can try to follow them. A lot of people definitely try to. They're hard to follow because ultimately, when you're in a relationship with someone, you don't become one person. You don't become one blob of a person. You're still two individuals trying to make something work. And that's the thing. I think Barbie is particularly brilliant, not just because it talks about patriarchy versus matriarchy. It also talks about moving beyond just those gender dynamics, moving beyond just gender. I think what I love so much about Gerwig's vision in this movie is that she is able to have a specific vision for something that is as broad as what you're talking about. The whole idea of gender is based in a human need to be seen and a human need to have things happen for yourself and to feel fulfilled in what you do and the people around you. And that is something that absolutely comes through in the final moments of Barbie. And what I really love about her work in this film is that she doesn't feel so tied to the way in which we expect stories to happen in a modern blockbuster. It's so logically sort of up in the air. How do you get from Barbie Land to the real world? Well, you just have to do this silly little ritual where you sing the Indigo Girls. How does Ken learn about patriarchy? He sees Bill Clinton on this LCD screen. She doesn't feel the need to move the story along with fanfare. The story doesn't have to justify itself. Things just happen. And I think that is so liberating and such a sign of someone who is comfortable in writing. I don't think that is just a sign of one great director, but it is absolutely a sign of two amazing minds coming together and melding into something just masterful. So much of it is genius. It's not just a visual masterpiece. It's also a very deep movie. That's what I kept telling my friends and my parents right after I watched the movie, that it's deceptively very deep. Like you can look at the trailer and you can be like, okay, this is a movie about Barbie, but it's a movie about so much more. And I remember when I was watching it in the theater, I watched it with a bunch of little girls, obviously. That was the audience that filled the theater. I think I was like one of three men in the theater. But I also remember that a few girls actually walked out of the theater because they didn't understand the movie. They didn't understand what was going on. It is because it's not just a movie about Barbie, but it's a movie about so many other things that are affecting, you know, our society today, which is gender, which is masculinity, which is feminism, which is a laundry list of things that are so integral to who we are as people that this movie is brave enough to say, like, look, we should just find a new way, find a way that's healthier. And at the same time, it does this nonchalantly, because these are things that we have known for many, many years, that so much of this conversation, we've been having it for so so long about like what is the right way what is the way that it should be done i think greta gerwig and noah bombeck answer it just really simply and they answer it in the most liberal way possible as well just be yourself that's all you have to be 
I really think this movie blows my expectations, not only for a Barbie movie, but maybe for a summer blockbuster in general. But you mentioned that you wish they would have gone a little bit of a different direction earlier. And I wanted, since we're talking about their sort of general vision in the context of the plot, I wanted to ask you about that. I'll say personally, to start out, one of the things I thought would be interesting. I don't think I have any qualms with the movie. Oddly enough, I think I just really like the movie. You would give it a 10 out of 10? Yeah, but, and I've seen it twice, and it hasn't faltered at all. So I'm going to do it a third time, and after that, I think this might have to go in my masterpiece section. Here's my thing, though, is if I were to make a critique, what I would say about the movie is that it focuses a lot on Ken in the second half, and I, I love that version of this movie. What I could see is the fact that there are a ton of amazing actors who are on the sidelines who have a couple of great gags, too many to list, and they have a couple of great gags, and then that's it. That's all they get. Because this is a focal movie on Barbie, and we have to get back to Barbie. And the movie ends, as you mentioned, with Barbie. So then you get to the question of what about the rest of this team? Could this have been an ensemble movie? And my answer is yes, it could have. It wasn't. They didn't decide to go that way. But if they had focused the plot mechanics in the second half or heavily on the Barbies in the rest of the world, because they're all named Barbie. All the rest of these Barbies, if they all got to do the same stuff that Barbie and America Ferreira's character Gloria did in the second section, I think that would have been pretty much the same mechanical device, but you would have allowed those secondary characters a little bit more time in the limelight. And when you have somebody like Issa Rae playing a Barbie, it's worth giving her a little bit more to do. I feel like you encapsulated my qualm perfectly when you mentioned America Ferrera, because this is the first time we've mentioned her and she's a big part of this movie. I mean, her monologue has been quoted almost everywhere on the internet. It's a brilliant monologue about what it means to be a woman. It's great. It feels so real. It also, it's, as a heterosexual man, it really stings you. <laughs> Yes, it does a little bit. I had a couple of those stings throughout the movie, to be honest. But I think uh, that monologue, I think you've already encapsulated it with your earlier talk about gender. So I think we've covered that ground. But needless to say, I thought both America Ferreira and Ariana Greenblatt, who has had a really great year in cinema in general. I thought America Ferreira was one of my favorite actors in the movie. And because we're talking about her, I had to give her a shout out because she has always had this talent in her. She was an absolute powerhouse as the titular character on the AMC sitcom Ugly Betty. And while that show is not without its problems, she absolutely kept that program alive, if not single-handedly, then practically so. And then she went on to do another amazing show called Superstore. I mean, she's a very successful and very great actress. And that's why it... But a TV actress. And I'm glad that she found her way to this blockbuster of a movie because she deserves to be there. But at the same time, my first qualm is that I feel, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, that I think that Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig, because they're such amazing writers, I think they did maybe two drafts 
three drafts of this total and they were happy with it. And they were like, all right, this is what we're doing. Let's hit the races. And that's the thing. When you do that, I mean, and I'm speaking from my own experience as a writer, I'm not comparing myself to Greta Gerwig or Noel Baumbach. I admire them greatly. But I think that when you do that or when I've done that, it's really easy to focus on like the main story and perfect that. But then you forget about all the other subplots. You don't tie off loose ends as well. You just gloss over them. And then there's that uncanny valley feeling when you're going over it once it's finally shot. And the uncanny feeling comes in two ways in this movie. The first is the secondary characters outside of Barbie and Ken. They're not as focused as much. And it works better in Barbie land because all the other Barbies feel like they need to be two-dimensional characters because, again, they live in Barbie land. They are dolls. But it doesn't feel as true or grounded when we're hit with reality, when we're in the real world. And America Ferrera and Ariana Greenblatt both portray human characters in the real world. And their story is quite human, right? It, it's a relationship between a daughter and mother that has become quite estranged and quite distanced. But it all ultimately becomes really forgettable as the movie goes on and the resolution to it doesn't really feel earned, even though it comes right after that amazing monologue because we barely see them together. It just feels like they're on this Barbie land ride and that fixes their problems. That doesn't do it for me, especially when they try to put so much focus on it and so much focus on it feels lost. That's the only part of the movie that doesn't feel deep. To me, I think the monologue is the culmination of America Ferreira's plot. That's how I read it. So that's why I didn't need anything else. Because ultimately, what you're talking about is screenwriting mechanics. And what I find liberating about Barbie is that I find it frequently breaks the rules you read about in these books. And I think is better for it. You absolutely can say that, and that is true. But then when you look at the characterizations found in both Barbie and Ken and how deep they are, you're all of a sudden are like, well, these other two characters are also getting a similar amount of focus. Why aren't they as deep as these two characters that are dolls? So that's what I mean. Monologue or no, when you compare them with the two main characters, they feel flat. And it just creates this feeling where it just feels like, oh man, I wish they did more with those characters. Why didn't they? Because that relationship was the catalyst to the reason Barbie went to this world in the first place. It just feels like a plot device as opposed to something that is actually integral to the story. In fact, I actually told this to a friend that that story would have worked better without the daughter-mother relationship. It might have actually worked better with just America Ferrera's character. Greenblatt was extraneous at a certain point in the film, a little bit. Well, more than a little bit because... Ultimately, it's the relationship that America Ferrera has with Barbie and what Barbie means to her, as opposed to what her daughter means to her. But I loved seeing her and her daughter get to experience this together. But it's mainly just from the rule of that I think it's sweet that a mother and daughter get to hang out with Barbie. I don't know if there's really a mechanical explanation for that. It's just something that I liked to see. So I'm not going to counter you with anything. I'll just be like, yeah, Ariana Greenblatt, awesome actor. Great to see her. Great to see more of her. But in a movie that tries really hard to be as amazing as it is, that part feels, dare I say it, lazy. It purely has to do with their priorities. And I think they handled their priorities quite well because the main plot is incredible. But the other thing 
that I will say that I also thought was a bit of a weakness in the script that because the movie was trying really hard to make fun of itself and make fun of the society around us that certain scenes started feeling like they started feeling like Saturday Night Live sketches which if you don't know is a sketch show oh quite a famous sketch show if somehow you're living under a rock or you don't live in America the program Saturday Night Live is a very very long running sketch show that happens every Saturday and it has that certain kind of sketch quality. So I hear you Niv, but I will say is you know what I else I'd, I'd say that about? A little movie called Ghostbusters or another movie that I like a little bit less as much called Caddyshack. Both are comedic classics. So to say that it's like a sketch show to me, and Ghostbusters totally breaks the manual. The whole final act thing totally comes out of nowhere. But is it awesome? Yeah! <laughs> okay, but there's a difference between being awesome and being Oscar-worthy. Ghostbusters would have never been Oscar-worthy. But it's a classic. It is better than the Oscars. What won the Oscar that year? Who cares? Who cares? You're right. But at the same time, this movie goes deeper. A movie like Ghostbusters or Caddyshack could even hope to be. So you can't bake your cake and eat it too. Oftentimes, the artistic quality of Barbie could get lost because of its on-the-nose nature. Because some jokes felt very, very witty and very, very smart. But others felt so on the nose that it just came off as a sketch, a sketch you would watch on Saturday Night Live, which is only bolstered by the fact that one of the mainstays of Saturday Night Live, Kate McKinnon, stars as Weird Barbie. So I think it was intentional to make it sketch-like. When it worked, it worked brilliantly. But when it didn't work again, it, it just felt like there wasn't enough draft to iron out those kinks. And I'm only picky about it because it's what I do. It's what I love doing. So to me, it's just like nails on a chalkboard. When you see something so near perfection, and there's these little blemishes that you're like, this could have been so easily fixed if you just gave another look at it, another pastor. Well, and as I mentioned, you're already one for two on me because I I don't have a comeback on Ariana Greenblatt's inclusion in the latter half of the movie. But I will double up on this one. I think that while a sketch show has a tendency to be precious with its jokes, often you will see a Saturday Night Live sketch that goes on for a while that just has one thing that they keep hammering on. I think Barbie is anything but precious about its material. I think it runs fast and I think it plays by its own rules. So because of that, I think this is not only a masterwork, but I think it is the new standard for IP or anything that is fun and blockbuster material. I don't think that the jokes fall flat ever. I love almost every single joke in this movie. And I think that's another point, which is that humor is ultimately very subjective. And if you didn't resonate with the jokes that might just be because of your specific taste my specific taste is so specific that it pretty much runs the gamut all the way from loving the stephen malcolmus joke to loving 
when they needle drop push by Matchbox 20. And that is pretty wide. And I loved every minute. I mean, I was on board for at least 90% of the jokes. It was just like the really cringe-worthy moments that I was like, well, I understand why it's cringe. It's supposed to be cringe, but this is too cringe. It just felt like tonal whiplash at times, which when the movie does that well, it really, really worked because it's supposed to tonally whiplash you with like this glossy Barbie world and this very deep, real message. But at the same time, it could go too far without actually giving it another pass-through. Is this actually working is it not because you're right you can break the rules but you can't recreate the wheel without making the wheel first and speaking of rule breaking in a second we gotta talk about how christopher nolan bends the rules of filmmaking with oppenheimer not just bends he literally instead of a wheel he made a square do you think it's more severe than the barbie mishaps oh my gosh atomic level severe what would you rate barbie oh nine out of ten Awesome. I think Barbie is my favorite movie of the year. It's a brand new take on the age of cinematic storytelling, and I would go so far as saying it could be this generation's Twilight or Star Wars. Similar to George Lucas's approach, the dialogue never attempts to be anything but what the artist is interested in. Oh my god. Yeah, I'm going there, man. It doesn't search to impress but it searches to express. That's so unfortunate because Yanon Kriz has just blatantly announced a Mattel cinematic universe. You know what? It could be that we're getting Barbie versus Barney in the near future. And you mentioned Mattel. This is going to be a movie that has a lot of aspects. And I want to end on what we started talking with. So we've done a little bit of light spoilers. I'm going to talk about the ending briefly before we take a break. So feel free to jump to the second section if you haven't watched Barbie. Before we take a break, I am going to go to a little bit more on the end of the movie. I'm still going to keep the spoilers pretty thin, but if you are interested in watching Barbie and if you listened up to this point, jump to Oppenheimer and I'll see you over there. I think Rhea Perlman's character, as we learn, is not only someone who vaguely resembles the Oracle from the Matrix, not only is she a maternal figure for Barbie, but she is the creator of Barbie, Ruth Handler. And I think her character is important in a totally different way. Yeah, it's kind of like a fan service thing, right? Because she's not only the creator of Barbie, she is one of the co-founders of Mattel. So she created the company, which was originally like a furniture company, and it only pivoted to a toy company because she herself specifically created the Barbie doll. Her other two co-founders, which one of them was her husband, didn't believe in the project at all. They actually were like, no, we would make far more money by just selling this furniture. And she didn't stop and she started selling it like by herself and it blew up so eventually it convinced these other two men to pivot alongside her to her product which they took credit for obviously but i think what's especially interesting as well is that ruth handler again was a real person she wasn't just a real person she was a jewish woman and she was a jewish woman who created a doll that represented everything that wasn't jewish blonde hair blue eyes tall slender it represented a more european and more American look, and it all had to do with marketing. Ruth Handler 
had a very powerful statement in the film that humans have finite time living, but ideas live forever. I think the real Ruth Handler understood that she lived in a world that didn't play by the rules of her ethnicity or her religion. And she instead had to play by the rules that the world dictated on her. So she created a doll that appealed to a wide audience as opposed to just to her. And that's how she was successful. That's how this IP became hyper successful. And I'll tell you right now, when I researched this movie, and when even when I watched this movie and quickly realized that her character was Jewish and that the person was Jewish, I was shocked. I didn't know that the creator of Barbie was Jewish. It just didn't make sense to me. But it ultimately comes to what is corporate, what is marketable. And I think that's what Mattel is doing. They're not expanding the idea. They're not deepening the idea like Greta Gerwig did. I think they're just cashing on it. Because as we said in the beginning, it's all about the money. It's not about the ideas that last forever. It's about the ideas that earn you the most money. And what I love about her in the film is that she doesn't feel like corporate propaganda. It might be that to some capacity, but it's so well done that it doesn't feel like it matters. And that's, I think, what's brilliant about her inclusion. It speaks to a universal truth, and that is that making something even a simple thing that is bigger than yourself then can last beyond you. And that is an idea of legacy that I think is so wholesome and so sweet. But that's another theme that this movie talks about, legacy, the legacy of Barbie and what Barbie means to each person. I think the Ruth Handler thing also means different things to different people. To you, it represents the legacy of this amazing creator and the amazing legacy of the doll and what this movie is pushing that message to be, something empowering, something great, something that doesn't feel corporate. That's true, but there is nuance in both ways, right? That in one way, it feels empowering. But in the other way, it does feel like a subtle nod towards corporate fan service. And both those ways can exist at the same time. Just like Barbie can be something that empowers women and disempowers women. That's the interesting thing about legacy is that it's a tricky subject. You can have a legacy that's as beloved as Ruth Handler, but context is important. When you have a legacy that's as mired as the subject of the movie Oppenheimer, you get into some nasty territory. And we're going to be talking about all of that in detail right after this quick little musical interlude. Stay tuned. And we're back. We are now going to be talking about the movie Oppenheimer. As I mentioned, pretty much everything's on the table on this section, especially on account of the fact that the part of the movie that seems to be what everyone is talking about is in the very last third. So consequently, if you haven't seen Oppenheimer, set aside a day and go to see it because you're not going to do much else. Christopher Nolan's new epic is about the creator of the atom bomb, which does have something in common with the creator of the Barbie doll and one of the creators of Zeitgeist. What is that, Niv, exactly? 
we're all Jewish. <laughs> There's no easy way to say that. We're just all Jewish, which is a great thing. I love being Jewish. We get good food. That's about it. No, no, no. And I think we learned one thing, that Jews are very good at creating things. <laughs> like, I actually told my friend that growing up, I learned about a lot of Jewish inventions from my mom because she is a very patriotic Israeli who was always like, look at all these cool things Jews did. So, yeah, I actually knew very early on in my childhood that the person who created one of the most disastrous weapons in our history was Jewish. But he had a very understandable motivation to do so. The invention of the atom bomb happened in this little event called World War II. And a big unfortunate thing that happened in World War II was another little thing called the Holocaust, which wasn't little at all. It killed over 12 million people, 6 million of them being Jews who were targeted by the Nazi party. Right. Oppenheimer had been moving around Europe, so it's not like he was an American Jew that had no frame of reference here. No, he actually worked with uh, German physicists. He studied under them, and the movie even refers to his mentor being his rival in the arms race that was happening in the war. Oppenheimer was developing the atom bomb in the United States, and Heisenberg was attempting to create his own version of a super weapon, which was unsuccessful. We talk about these two Jewish creators, Ruth Handler and J. Robert Oppenheimer, and the Jewish nature appears far more in this movie because it's more prevalent. In one way, you have a movie like Barbie that doesn't talk at all about its Jewish influence because it isn't important. It's focused more on the creation as opposed to the person behind it. As we talked about in our Barbie section, movies about IPs tend to go in two different directions, right? One is a biopic and one is fully investing. Barbie chose the latter. I think Oppenheimer smartly and wisely chooses the former because the atomic bomb is not only a serious subject, but it is intrinsically connected to the creator and the motivation behind it. Weapons are created because there is a sense of need for them. Why? As a form of destruction. They're not made for fun. They're not made necessarily to just be sold commercially. In fact, they're most of the time not sold commercially. But also often they are a necessity and that's why they're made in the first place. They solve a problem. Yes, unfortunately, because it's tied to a weapon and specifically a weapon and the psychology of how weapons like that get made, of course, it has to focus on the person who created it in the first place. In that regard, that is why it connects to Judaism at large, because the motivation to create the atom bomb, especially for Oppenheimer, is because his ethnicity and his religion was being persecuted by this awful war that killed millions upon millions. Yeah. And of course, the belief that his creation was a necessity is what fuels him. And then ultimately, the realization of the fact that weapons, in retrospect, feel so non-necessary that mm -hmm. that's the whole other part of the Oppenheimer narrative. And we see all of this interweaving amidst the first two hours. Ironically, I think Benny Safdie is the one who looks the most Jewish in this movie. Cillian Murphy is, from his name, obviously not a Jewish man, but... He does have very nice cheekbones. 
There is a thing about Cillian that his castmates have said in interviews that it was hard to do scenes with him because they would get lost in his very, very blue eyes. Which again, when you think about the quote unquote Nazi ideal of a person, it was blonde hair and blue eyes. Cillian having one of them does not necessarily (laughs) create the image of like, yeah, this person is playing a Jew. For me, I had to suspend disbelief a little bit to be like, oh yeah, okay, this Irish man is playing a Jewish man. Absolutely, I had to suspend disbelief. But at the same time, he did such a great job because he's such an incredible actor. It didn't take much to just convince me to be on this ride with him. Not to mention the fact that this is his first leading role in a blockbuster, let alone a Nolan film, which he has appeared in so many of them at this point. Yeah, but he's never been the lead, which is so cool. But he's also considered, I think, by many, considering his nearness to Nolan, that he is a movie star. But to me, he also kind of seems predominantly a TV star due to his proximity to Peaky Blinders, which is, other than the Nolan movies, what I consider him best known for. I had this conversation with my sister who loves him. She has lived in Europe, so she's been aware of his talent much longer than me. Because she's seen some of his smaller things too, like his more indie films. She told my mom, yeah, Cillian Murphy is a really known actor. He's really amazing because we were talking about them potentially going to see Oppenheimer. And my response was like, well, he's not famous. Not compared to the other actors in this movie. He's not that famous. Like You can't compare Cillian Murphy to Matt Damon. Damon, Robert Downey Jr., and Emily Blunt. Like, you can't compare him to Iron Man, Jason Bourne, and Mary Poppins. But what I did admit, and was happy to admit, was that he is a really, really great actor. In fact, more than great, he's incredible. And he's finally getting the spotlight that he deserves. But I think the reason he isn't as famous as those other three I just mentioned is because Cillian Murphy is renowned to be an incredibly private person. He actually doesn't like being famous. He hasn't done many interviews. He's barely on press tours. He's on the biggest press tour of his career right now, though. His career has not had a ton of them, and he's still truncated. It's just that he's the lead of the movie, so he has to be on these shows. But what? Like, he's on Marin. He's not doing Chicken Shop Date. But that's what I mean. If someone were to ask him, hey, can you be on Fallon tonight? There has been a lot of indication that he'd be like, nope, that's not my thing. Well, and there will be no Fallon (laughs) for him because of the strikes. There's a difference between fame and recognizability. I think like anyone who's in my mom's demographic would not recognize Cillian Murphy unless she was really into Nolan films or art house films. She would not recognize Cillian Murphy, but she would recognize Robert Downey Jr. And she would recognize Emily Blunt. And she would recognize a lot of other actors in this movie, I think. But I don't think she would recognize Cillian Murphy. And if she did, she wouldn't be able to remember his name. I think that's also why... Christopher Nolan picked him to star as J. Robert Oppenheimer. Because while Oppenheimer is very magnetic to the people around him in the film, he's very unassuming. He just feels like some guy. And that's sort of the point, that just some guy was able to create one of the most devastating weapons known to mankind. 
I think he reminds me a lot of what people say that Abraham Lincoln was like, charismatic, but kind of subdued. And I almost wish that he could do a Lincoln biopic. I know it's been that long since there was one, and obviously Daniel Day-Lewis is a phenomenal actor, but I think his faculties are very robust and very loud. He just has a natural instrument that can play a lot of different notes. And I think that made him a really interesting Lincoln. But I think in terms of what an actor can do, there are limits. And Daniel Day-Lewis did the best that he had, as he always does. But I think that Cillian Murphy could do something totally different. What you're saying is absolutely true. He has that charismatic, but also yet brooding and subdued sense to him. I think that's what was attractive to Nolan in the first place, because least you forget that he was actually in the running to play Batman in Batman Begins. And he was very close to being cast. In fact, he was actually screen tested in a couple of scenes. But eventually, as we both know, Christian Bale got the part instead. Well, and you were talking about the supporting cast, which is a lot of A-listers, A and B-listers across the board, but particularly Robert Downey Jr. and Matt Damon don't seem to want to be A-listers anymore in that way. Robert Downey Jr.'s last major project I know about was a documentary called Senior, which doesn't feature him at all as the primary target. It's his father, Robert Downey Sr., who was a very interesting art house director. Senior is on Netflix for those who are interested. And then Matt Damon, who has a movie called Air, which is also on a streaming service. And he has a couple of random projects alongside his close friend and air co-star, Ben Affleck. And honestly, Robert Downey Jr. being second fiddle to Murphy is, I think, really fascinating and also might be my favorite Robert Downey Jr. performance of all time. It's so much more interesting to watch him play this than just another Iron Man type. And to me, the actors I'm more puzzled by are the ones that are just relegated to the background, which I'm going to hold off on that on account of the fact that I do want to highlight one other actor in the main cast, who is Josh Hartnett. And Hartnett, I think the interesting thing about his character is he seems to be the one that is most in tune with a specific influence, which is Oliver Stone's JFK. And the awesome thing about JFK is that Oliver Stone himself has gone on the record to say Oppenheimer is, to him, a classic film, and he doesn't know how it was made today. And that's all within this main cast, and most certainly, Cillian Murphy. And I think Cillian Murphy even goes above the lead actor of JFK, Kevin Costner, obviously. And Kevin Costner is good for what he did in JFK. To me, I think uh, they have kind of an opposite trajectory where in JFK, the final third is the most engaging and enrapturing and fast pace. And in Oppenheimer, the last third is a little slower and a little bit more divisive. And the first two hours are an absolute rat race. So the first two hours is the speed of light. The last hour is the speed of sound. That's what I would say. That's very interesting that you thought that because there are a lot of crits on Oppenheimer for the opposite, that the final hour drags. But I think in some ways that might just be the like TikTokification of people's attention spans. 
the last third was dragging compared to the first, but they were both really, really fast. It's just that the third was marginally slower than the first, but only by a tad. So obviously, Hartnett is the guy that feels the most like a Costner-esque guy, or at least could have been in the same room as Costner. But of course, in 2023, are you a fan of Hartnett or have you seen any of his work? I feel like I have, but the crazy thing is I've heard his name so many times. I've seen his name so many times. He just doesn't have a recognizable face. That's how it feels like. Like when I see him, I'm like, oh, it's some actor. Who is that actor? And then I look it up and I'm like, oh, it's Josh Hartnett. Who is Josh Hartnett? That's happened to me, I think, too many times. And even here, he kind of looks like Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, no, I see it. Famous screenwriter and director Aaron Sorkin who this movie has absolutely no relation with, right? There's absolutely nothing in common, in style or otherwise. Well, his thing is speed of dialogue. With Nolan, it's speed of editing. I think there's a lot in common. Yeah, yeah. I think that Nolan was really, really smart with putting relative unknowns front and center, even though Cillian Murphy is not an unknown, but compared to the rest of the major cast, he is quite unknown. But he put the most unassuming actors in the forefront, and he put like the powerhouses against them, because that's ultimately what the movie is about. These really larger-than-life forces attempting to control the situation of the atomic bomb and its creation and micromanaging Oppenheimer as a person as well, because they're like, we have authority over you, but how can you have authority over a person who's basically inventing the most dangerous weapon known to man for you? That in itself feels like a paradox when I say it out loud. Even though I appreciate so many of these performances and I think they're all really well done, the two I really want to shout out is Cillian Murphy's and Robert Downey Jr.'s performances, because it felt like the movie was truly about them. And I'll get to this later, but it didn't just feel like it was about them. It felt like it was at times only interested in them. It wasn't interested in almost any other person aside from them. And it's partially what made the movie both work and not work for me. What about you, Jordan? Was there, other than Benny Safdie, who you're a huge fan of for a lot of reasons, was there another actor you were drawn to in this movie? I mean, to be honest, I've named a lot of them. And there's a line in the notes, which you've created, Niv, that says Jordan is not allowed to list actors, and so I'm not going to. Instead, what I do want to talk about is something that you've already mentioned, which is that Oppenheimer places a really strong emphasis on tone and becomes more akin to a tone poem versus being something a little bit more narrative. I mentioned that there is, I think, a little bit, or I kind of sarcastically tossed out that there is some correlation to an Aaron Sorkin movie, which I would stand by. I think particularly in the relation of Robert Downey Jr., which I have later in our conversation. But before I talk about Sorkin's influence, I think a more minor influence, but important, is Terrence Malick, and particularly Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line, which is the only other movie I can think of in existence that does two things as prominently as this movie. Firstly, the cutting to B-roll that happens in Nolan's movie is unlike anything I've seen from Nolan thus far and is so Malick-esque. Wait, what is B-roll, Jordan? 
let me explain. And for our audience who doesn't know. So a roll is just what you typically see. So if we had a video podcast, it would all be a roll. It would be my face and it would be Niv's face. And because I'm sweaty through the middle of a hot LA day, we decided to not do a video podcast and that's okay. But then if we were to do B-roll, an example of that would be if we cut to the curtains that I'm facing right now, or if we cut to a close-up shot of the microphone, or if all of a sudden I started thinking about atom bombs and we cut to the inside of an atom bomb exploding, that is B-roll. So that is what you see. And it ultimately what it does is it delves into the character's minds and offers a really unique perspective, which I think is awesome. But it also means that it can feel a little unfocused and divergent. For Terrence Malick, that's because his movies tend to run pretty slow and feel very open and very like wandering. But for Oppenheimer, it's anything but that. It's all about precision and pace. And I think that's largely because of Nolan. But Nolan also wants to sort of gild the lily when he makes a movie. And that means that he's going to add a lot of extra layers, even if the movie might not necessarily need them. But the casting for Oppenheimer deviates a little bit from traditional because it's omitting those A-list and B-list stars. I'm thinking of Josh Peck, who is someone that most Americans will know from Drake and Josh. He is like Clooney in The Thin Red Line. Another case is Rami Malek, who gets limited screen time. Oscar winner Rami Malek. I think one scene where he speaks and about two others where he doesn't. And to me, that's just like Adrian Brody in The Thin Red Line, because he was made to be the main character when Terrence Malick wrote the script of the movie, but by the time the movie came out, it became something totally different. I'm not exactly sure what the Oppenheimer script looked like, other than that it was written in first person, which is just kind of a fun tidbit. Other than that, not entirely sure, but I can't imagine that it felt as crazy but it also diverges away from first person eventually but yeah i guess in the acting i want to give attention to both florence Pugh and emily blunt who are the only two women who are heavily focused on in this film florence Pugh, who plays jean tatlock a famous psychiatrist and emily blunt who plays Catherine oppenheimer who was a famous biologist and i don't think they're given that much justice unfortunately and I think we both agree. I feel like <sighs> Emily Blunt appears the most in the movie because she is portraying J. Robert Oppenheimer's wife. At least Kitty gets a moment in the movie where she mentions her scientific pursuits, but really pretty thin. Those two characters are portrayed magnificently. I think particularly Florence Pugh is a really, really terrific actor. But I also think that of the problems I have with this movie, there are just a few. And I think the big one, one we've already touched on, which is the crazy editing, one we're about to touch on, and the third is his portrayal of women, which has been a constant problem for Nolan. I think Inception is kind of the one people usually point to in terms of the fact that usually he treats the women to kind of a brooding general aesthetic, but then throws them in the back and doesn't do much with them. They are extensions to men. That's what's happening. That is most certainly true to Emily Blunt, I think, in her role, and I didn't care for that character at all. I think Florence Pugh is so incredible, and I adore her so much that I could look beyond it, despite the fact that most of the times she appears in the movie, she is topless. And I don't think we have to overstate what implication that has. 
Yeah, and both in the end of the day are in this movie because of their relationship to Oppenheimer, the romantic relationship to Oppenheimer. So we don't actually get to learn much about them in terms of their scientific accomplishments as people because they have they were in fact accomplished scientists. We get moments of those accomplishments because Nolan at least draws from history and that's what attracts Oppenheimer to both of them to begin with. But because it's not their movie, it's in fact Oppenheimer's movie. It again feels as if those two characters feel like an extension of Oppenheimer as opposed to operating individually in this movie. And that feels like a lot of other characters in this movie too. But I think the worst cases are those two characters because of their intimate relationship to Oppenheimer and how those intimate relationships are used against him multiple times. Absolutely, you're right that there are plenty of times in which you feel like you can't get a grip of a character, and I think that might be the point. But it means that when Heisenberg came on screen, I didn't even know who that was. And I remember Casey Affleck appeared for a scene, and I don't even remember who his character was. Who was he in relation to whomever? I know that he was important, but I didn't know exactly how he was important. Did you even realize that Gary Oldman was the guy who played the president in that one scene? It took me a minute. Like I knew I recognized him and it drove me insane. So as soon as I got home, I Googled it and I was like, yeah, of course it was Gary Oldman. The final thing that really makes this movie a tough watch. It's like Return of the King times 100. And in what way? Can you explain in what way? Well, so the movie is broken into two parts, and if it were my movie, all I would have really done, I don't know how much I would have changed to Oppenheimer because it is kind of its own thing. It's doing whatever it's going to do, and I don't know if there's exactly a way to, like, add in some in-depth female characters to make this movie and kind of save it, you know? It's the same thing we talked about with Blonde. Like, Blonde is so blonde that it's hard to unblonde Blonde from Netflix. It's a previous episode. I'm kind of being inside baseball with Niv right now. Check it out. It's on our feed. But yeah, so there's two parts of the movie. The first half is about the creation of the atom bomb and Los Alamos, right? So act one is getting the team together. Let's just call it what it is. Movie one. No, no, no. Act one is getting the team together. Act two is creating the bomb. Act three is setting up the bomb and blowing it up. And then act four, (laughs) there's like this giant leg kind of dangling around. And that is the movie that I feel like Nolan really wanted to make. I feel like it's two movies. It operates in sort of an eight act structure as opposed to a four act structure. It's like an octopus and it's wiggling its limbs around. Yeah, it's wiggling its warheads around. Because that's the thing. Imagine if this octopus was also the Flash, right? It just would be wiggling everywhere as it runs at the speed of light. You know what I felt like it was like? Is if Steven Soderbergh released Ocean's Eleven and Twelve and just made it one long movie. No, here's what I felt about it. I felt like I was watching a three-hour movie, but at 1.5 speed. That's what it felt like. And I get it. It was the point. It was the tone. The tone was amazing. It was revolutionary. It made it feel so intense. That, again, that was the point. But what ends up happening is the movie feels all tone 
an almost no character because the only characters we really get an in-depth look at is J. Robert Oppenheimer and maybe, just maybe, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Louis Strauss, who is the antagonist of this film. I legitimately think that the first half of the movie could stand alone as an engaging biopic, meaning that if you went home after the two hours, you could have watched a full movie that was a little fast-paced, but overall you would have gotten a full experience. But, as I mentioned, I think that the second half, to me, is the more captivating and interesting part because it seems like the movie that Nolan really wants to make, which is why it's there at all. Obviously, an intermission would have improved the experience and given audiences like a break to refresh and i think it would have actually made it feel a little bit more like a full-on epic it used to be very prominent so i think that is truly the way in which you would save this film but the second half has this new element which is lewis strauss strauss is a character in the first half we know about his existence but if you had him in just the first bit it would seem like he was basically setting up oppenheimer's shtick he's got this very mechanical kind of point to a level that there is basically the character of what's his name han solo in in the 2018 star wars movie he was the guy who plays against strauss and he's basically just the walk and talk character he's the foil Aaron Aldenreich is his name, yeah. So how do you feel like the character of Louis Strauss fares as a character in the second half, especially as a Salieri-type character? I mean Salieri from the 1980s classic uh, award winner Amadeus. Or I'll give you a counterpoint. I see him as somewhat of an Eduardo character from The Social Network. Well, here is my counterpoint to that. And I think this is like a triumph and a weakness of this movie because even though Strauss is really prominent in the second half because that's where the court story takes place. Like there's two court stories happening at once in the second half of the movie. One of them has to do with Oppenheimer's hearing regarding his military intelligence clearance and whether he keeps it or not. And the other one has to do with Strauss's confirmation hearing about whether or not he's going to be a member of the U.S. cabinet for, I believe, Truman's government. Even though that's the focus of the second half of the film, Strauss appears appears throughout the entire film, right? He comes in and out because the movie plays with time. There's moments that it is in the present and there's moments that it is in various moments of the past. And that's where it also becomes a bit unwieldy because you only start really understanding the importance of Strauss as the movie moves along. And that's where it really feels like a Salieri type of character as opposed to an Eduardo type of character. Because in many ways, it's Strauss telling Oppenheimer's story, even though Oppenheimer is the focal point, right? Just like Salieri and Amadeus. And another thing is the motivation that Strauss has against Oppenheimer is not only jealousy, but vanity. The reason Strauss turns against Oppenheimer, or the reason we're given, is because he believes that Oppenheimer turned the scientific community against Strauss, because they were both on two sides of what to do with the atom bomb. Oppenheimer believed that they needed to strip down weapon development, and Strauss believed they needed to push it even harder. And he eventually got his way because the hydrogen bomb was eventually invented by a character played by Benny Safdie, Edward Teller. And Teller is really shown in a really interesting light in the movie, too. I love what they did with his character. He's one of the deeper characters in this movie. Not that there are many of them, but he is like a shining light in this movie. There are not, in fact. 
and then you get another deep character ish like he's a, like an interesting two-dimensional character alden ehrenreich plays strauss's senate aide and he's the one sort of helping him prep and go through this Senate confirmation hearing and trying to reassure him that he will get through. But as the movie moves along and this confirmation hearing gets through, Aaron Reich's character starts turning on Strauss because he starts seeing him for who he really is, a person who lets vanity and selfishness drive him. And he ends up being not only Strauss's foil, but also the sounding board for how the audience feels. Because that's the thing, this movie feels like a double-edged sword almost every minute you're watching it because every triumph is followed by a massive annoyance for example this movie focuses so much on oppenheimer that we empathize with him we have to empathize with him because that's the character that we understand the most so we get a very doctored viewpoint on him that nolan is very intentional about and it creates this thing where we almost don't care about any other character other than him so when aaron reich's character chides strauss for betraying or causing damage to Oppenheimer's reputation for petty reasons, we are absolutely in Oppenheimer's, we are absolutely on his side because that's the only perspective that we know and understand. I actually did a bit of research on Strauss and realized that even though vanity was his major motivation, historically speaking, there were other factors in his motivation, one of which ironically has to do with the fact that they were both Jewish men. Strauss felt like Oppenheimer didn't care about his Jewish community enough, even though he created the atom bomb. And he actually felt resentful towards Oppenheimer because Strauss felt like he had to earn his position as a Jew in America, whereas Oppenheimer was just given a respectable position in the U.S. government, and he didn't really have to earn it. Interesting things that are not in the movie. No. Well, because that's not the viewpoint that we're going on. In fact, I think Louis Strauss's inclusion is essential on account of the fact that Oppenheimer is so multifaceted in terms of morality that you need to create a character who is in some ways worse. And so giving Louis Strauss a valid reason as opposed to just being petty, I think would diminish him as a villain a little bit. And I also wanted to mention that because of you saying this, I actually think you are really onto something. And I am curious more about the connection to the social network wherein he would play a character more like Mark, honestly, more like Mark Zuckerberg on account of the fact that the ending, I think, feels a little bit more similar in the way that he and Alden Ehrenreich have sort of a difference in tone from the way that they walk into the room at the beginning of the day. And that's a mirror to the end of The Social Network. And similarly, I think The Social Network is one of the unique pieces of cinema where it's 90 miles a minute, very similar walk and talks. I think a lot of the scenes in this new movie do feel more like an Aaron Sorkin script than he ever has before, despite the fact that the deliverance of the dialogue does end up feeling very much like a Nolan movie. I do see a lot of that in the film. But of course, in the context of a court drama, both JFK and The Social Network bring that as a framing device. And while in The Social Network, it uses a lot more flashbacks in the way that Oppenheimer does. Obviously, in the movie JFK, it does it in a linear fashion. And that's why it, I think, works a little bit better in terms of its final act than Oppenheimer does. That said, it is a pretty confusing movie, Oppenheimer. And I did end up 
having the luxury of watching it twice, I watched both movies twice, but Oppenheimer I was forced to on account of the fact that there was a technical issue on the first screening. But it's nice to be able to watch it with a little bit of that context, knowing who Louis Strauss is, knowing what's going to happen at least a little bit in the first bit, because I never even got to Los Alamos the first time. But first time you watch this kind of movie, it feels like your brain's being thrown into a particle accelerator. We did get to live inside Oppenheimer's mind for much of the film, but I don't know if we really have the luxury of understanding Oppenheimer. I think that's partially due to Nolan's personal shortcomings. But I also want to lay on one more comparison, which is that this chewy expressionist form of storytelling actually reminds me very strongly of Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, especially due to the score, which I think is amazing. Both movies we're talking about today have a tremendous musical background, but Ludwig Göransson's score for Oppenheimer is, to me, kind of like a bridge between Philip Glass, who is this minimalist composer, and Hans Zimmer, who is, of course, the person that got Nolan where he was. I don't think there is any doubt that Zimmer didn't contribute to Christopher Nolan's success. And he's the most prolific composer when it comes to blockbusters nowadays. So every time you hear basically these grand epic tones, you know it's Hans Zimmer. But yeah, as we talked about, the tone of this movie and the speed of this movie go hand in hand, right? It doesn't have time to dwell on its characters, not because it's not interested. It's just all about tone, which unfortunately makes it feel like a three-hour sizzle reel at times or a three-hour trailer because every scene goes by so fast and is so intense that you don't have time to clock it. Like, you know when you're watching a trailer and it gets really intense that you have to pause it and rewind it to truly understand what you just saw? That's what Oppenheimer feels like but without the ability to pause. And for three whole hours, that's not only insane, it's impossible to watch. Because yeah, you watch it, you get to the end, but you ask yourself like, how much of this movie did I really see? When I sat by myself and I asked myself that question, I was like, I understood this whole movie. I really did. I understood the whole plot. I understood the whole story. But did I feel like I watched all the movie? No. I felt like I watched maybe 50% of it really. And and then clock the synopsis in my head based on the flashbacks. But what's amazing is that's exactly what Nolan has wanted to do his entire career. His whole bag is attempting to create mind benders. And that's what Inception was. That's what The Prestige was. That's what Memento was. Memento, actually, I think, is, if I had to rank Nolan films, I think this would rank pretty high. And Memento and Oppenheimer, oddly enough, I think would go side by side, just on account of the fact that they both do that so adeptly, but in two very different ways. They also both use black and white in almost the exact same way, which is to show that a character viewpoint is changing and you don't realize it in Oppenheimer until about three quarters of the way through. But the big thing for me about what I think makes Oppenheimer the most accessible is that A, it does feel more like a tone poem. It's not so much about individual facts and figures, but just like it rattles through them and you don't no, because you don't have to know, I guess. You just need to know that he builds the atom bomb. The facts are there if you pick them up. But really, it's like a grab bag. If you pick up half of them, you're honestly doing better than most. And the big stuff is things that we get to again and again and again. Which also brings me 
to the inclusion of Albert Einstein adding an extra dimension to this movie, while it doesn't always happen in the most historically accurate way, from what I gather, they overemphasize Einstein's contributions. Oppenheimer and Einstein did in fact know each other, and obviously, as historical drama to young people, I would have hated this if I watched it as a young person, because it is a little melodramatic, because it is pretty fact-heavy, because it's pretty grim. But because of that challenging nature, I think having this, like, TikTokification, for lack of a better term, or trailerfication, is something that will help for that accessibility. And adding Einstein into the equation, I mean, you see Einstein on screen, and it's just kind of a moment. It's very similar to seeing the atom bomb getting detonated. It's just a moment where you're like, whoa, like, this is the most important scientist of the 20th century. It's amazing to see him portrayed in such a way and to see him talk to this main character. When the trailer came out and Einstein appeared in that trailer, people compared it to the Marvel Cinematic Universe where you see like a really famous cameo or actor playing like a side character in a Marvel movie, but it's shown in the trailer. That's one of the few good things that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has spawned, like an excitement when you see like a character with gravity or an actor with gravity in a trailer about something else entirely. And it's the Marvelization of hyping up a character in a story that I think is great. You know, like I myself got excited to see Einstein. I knew this wasn't Einstein's story, but I, I love history and I know the history quite well myself. So I knew they ran in similar circles and the atom bomb was actually built off of Einstein's formula as well. All scientific formulas lead into each other. They're built off from each other. They're developed from each other. So of course, these two people were interconnected, even though Einstein never intended for his formula formula to be used in such a way. As you said, there is a perspective change, right, where it becomes Strauss's story a little bit, but still the focal point remains on Oppenheimer. Even in a hearing to confirm Strauss, the conversation is always about Oppenheimer. Well, and because of that, it follows its title. But also, I agree to a point that I think it is nice to have that. I will dissent a little bit that there are some moments that feel a little bit corny because they do the thing that Marvel does where they mention a famous person and it's almost like they're looking at the camera while they do it. But again, moving back to what we were talking about at the beginning, this is a blockbuster. So to have a blockbuster moment, even if it feels a little bit cringy, I'm not sure if I can knock it on that the same way I would knock it on the other three points that I mentioned. The women, the false ending, and the editing. But that's the thing. Einstein appearing has had a weirdly similar gravity to when Captain America held Thor's hammer. You know what I mean? Like something that has been built on for years upon years upon years in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is being compared to a famous scientist appearing for at most 10 minutes in this film. Why do you think Oppenheimer has a limited audience, Niv? Obviously, this isn't going to be a billion-dollar movie the same way Barbie is. Obviously, Oppenheimer has a little bit more of a niche audience. It is a biopic. It's not going to be for everybody, but it's opening on the same weekend as Barbie. It's also at the exact same budget level as Barbie. So I don't know if it's necessarily going to break that billion-dollar threshold the same way Barbie did. 
but it is, you know, scaling up in a way that wasn't expected, right? And a big part of it has to do with Barbenheimer. But the other factors of it is it has a bunch of famous stars who are not the lead. And of course, there is a draw to the fact that Nolan is a director. Nolan has directed a bunch of blockbusters in this point that have made bank, not just the Dark Knight trilogy, but also Inception, Interstellar. They both did very, very well in the box office. And they were movies that weren't based on any IP. So Nolan at least deserves kudos for that alone. But the thing that is alienating audiences, I think, and has them be more attracted to Barbie as a viewing experience is the simple fact that this movie is three hours long. That's it. It's a really, really long movie. And people just don't have the attention span for epics anymore. You were right when you said like, this feels like an epic because it is. It's designed as such. And not only that, you mentioned something very, very important earlier on regarding Oliver Stone and his comments about this movie. He said that this feels like a classic movie. I think when he says classic movie, he means Ben-Hur or other great epics like that that don't get made. And there's a reason why they don't get made anymore. And the biggest reason is they're just too dang long. I have thought for years that David Lean's late career mimics. David Lean, the director of Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago, that his career mimics Christopher Nolan's in his late era. And I stand by that. And I think this proves to that point, if not a little bit sideways. Obviously, the creation of the atom bomb isn't so near to the bridge on the River Kwai, but I don't think that there's zero overlap either. Well, it doesn't use CGI. Neither one of them use CGI because Bridge on the River Kwai was in the 50s. So they create something insane, this monumental set piece. And that is something that doesn't get made anymore. So yeah, blowing up the bridge on the Bridge on the River Kwai, I guess, is similar. I mean, in terms of plot mechanics, I really see pretty much nothing in common. But in margins, sure. But what I do think there is an overlap on is the Oscar race. There are a number of, I think, really prominent names that could be on an Oscar ticket, but it's hard to tell right now because it's so far away. I mean, it could be even farther if the sag after strike continues. I see two major ones for Barbie off the top of my head, three if you count Greta Gerwig for Best Director. The thing is, with an IP story like this, I see Barbie as something that I think will sweep technicals, but I don't know if it will land in the Best Picture category just on account of the really kind of cynical Oscar voting block. But I do see two major technical people which is Sarah Greenwood, who is the set designer. Incredible set designer, really feels like a Kubrickian set. She also created a really amazing set for Anna Karenina, directed by Joe Wright, and Rodrigo Prito, for no other reason than because he is Martin Scorsese's cinematographer, and I feel like he has outdone himself with Barbie. And I know I bashed the script a bit, but I think it will get a nomination for Best Original Screenplay, if nothing else but for that monologue. In terms of acting, I think that Barbie will definitely give nods to both Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling for Best Actress and Best Actor. Yeah, and for Oppenheimer, I'm seeing a pretty good chance that we're going to get two wins. I see Best Director for Christopher Nolan and even more so... 
Cillian Murphy for Best Actor. I think his role as Oppenheimer is so well-deserved, and he's been in the game for so long, I can't see a world in which anyone else takes Best Actor. Here's my caveat. I think you're right about Cillian Murphy, but I think Nolan is not going to win. In fact, I think someone else is going to win in a category you didn't mention. I think Robert Downey Jr. is going to win Best Supporting Actor. And his second time doing so, right? After Tropic Thunder. Yeah, which is nuts. What two movies? If any of that happens, you know what? We're going to talk about it right here on Zeitgeist. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. And stay tuned on our feed for our next episode. And a very special thank you to Niv, who was able to last through this conversation, despite the fact that he is on a different time zone. So shout out to Niv and shout out to all of you so much for listening. Next time we are going to be talking about, would you like to tell them? Next up, we're going to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and The Flash, because we really want to do a deep dive on James Gunn. Yeah, a man that deeply needs a celebration. I am so excited to do so. I mean, Gunn is someone I have been a fan of since Scooby-Doo from way back in the day when he wrote that, of course. But we'll talk more about his career and the future of the DCEU on the next episode. Till then, I am Jordan Conrad. And I'm Nevo Boz. And we are signing off. Stay critical and we'll see you next time. Thank you.